0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Counterspin, Comedian Lee Camp, The Rachel Maddow Show, MarkFiore.com, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And a note for our more impressionable listeners, this episode may make you wish to live in Iceland. And I say go for it, because I've heard good things about their hot springs, too. The top economists from the International Monetary Fund
1: last week acknowledged that the fund blew its forecast for greece and other european economies because it did not fully understand how government austerity efforts would undermine economic growth it just it, i don't even know how to really digest this because it was clear there was a tremendous amount outcry from economists it seemed to me across the spectrum who said that you know everything that we know of Keynesian economics suggests that if you cut spending and raise taxes particularly on those people who spend money during an economic downturn you're going to deepen the economic downturn but yet apparently at the imf they don't have um... i don't know phones or the internet the new and highly technical paper looks again at the issue of fiscal multipliers we've talked about this on this program the impact that a rise or fall in government spending or tax collection has on the country's economic output in other words there is not necessarily a one-to-one relationship between government spending and how it affects the economy government spending in specific types of government spending and specific ty- types of tax increases or cuts have an implication beyond that one dollar in the context of the economy we know that the multiplier effect for instance for unemployment insurance is around one dollar and sixty two cents for every one dollar of unemployment insurance you give to unemployed people it has a one dollar and sixty impact on the economy on the GDP because that dollar gets spent and spent and spent again because that first recipient of that dollar puts it immediately into the economy and in buying products that will have a greater effect that is the multiplier if fiscal uh, multipliers are small writes Howard Schneider I believe this is in the uh, New York Times countries can cut spending faster or raise more in taxes without short-term damage in other words the fiscal multiplier for tax increase on people who make more than four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year is very tiny because they don't spend this money anyways if they are large like unemployment insurance Then the process can become self-defeating. Or, in other words, if you stop unemployment insurance, they can they can become self-defeating at least in the short run. With each dollar of government spending cuts, for example, costing the economy more than a dollar in lost output, and thus actually increasing the debt to GDP ratios. So the IMF has now conceded this point, and it's why you see the Greek economy even though they imposed this austerity it supposedly to cut their deficit go into the toilet and increase their deficit and you see the same thing in britain you see the same thing in spain you see it wherever this type of austerity has been imposed so the implications of four years of government job cuts under president obama despite the fact that the uh, there were 725,000 more jobs in the private sector. There were almost uh, 700,000 fewer government jobs. That is why we have had such time, uh, such a hard time recovering from this recession. The decrease in spending, the shrinking of the deficit, has also been a huge lag in the recovery of this recession. So all of what we're seeing over the next 2 months is nothing more than an attempt to cut long-term spending and do it on the backs of essentially senior citizens either by cutting Medicare in the the form of raising eligibility age or cutting social security in the form of undercounting the inflation adjustments that seniors need to maintain some type of parity in their retirement so that they don't have to move from tuna to cat food this is all an attempt by the establishment and the wealthy in this country to basically pay government bills by shrinking the social support systems of our country. That's all it is. And in the case of President Obama, I think at least a part of that is also if we can get a deal on cutting Social Security, it's going to be one element of my legacy. I've checked off that box.
2: And speaking of painful austerity, the New York Times touted Latvia as an austerity success story on January 1, reporting, quote, In just four years, the country has gone from the European Union's worst economic disaster zone to a model of what the International Monetary Fund hails as the healing properties of deep budget cuts. Its budget deficit is down sharply and exports are soaring, close quote. How good are things now? At 5%, Latvia has the highest growth rate in Europe, says the Times. Severe collapses are usually followed by bounces in growth. The Times doesn't mention that. But deeper in the piece, it acknowledges that, oh, nearly a third of Latvia's population are still severely materially deprived, and that more than 5% have emigrated due to the economy. Writing for naked capitalism economists Jeffrey Summers and Michael Hudson reject the Times account. They say Western journalists are victims of PR, quote, a Potemkin village of austerity progress built by neoliberal lobbyists for visiting journalists and policymakers, close quote. They say austerity advocates define success as, quote, slashing wage levels and leaving the tax burden primarily on labor, without spurring a revolution or even Greek-style general strikes. The success is one of psyops and of engineering of consent, Edward Bernays' style, rather than of successful economic policy. Quote. Summers and Hudson point out that Latvia's real growth is based on odious sources, such as what they call oligarch hot money and money laundering, as well as the clear-cutting of Latvia's forests for export. This is all quite different from the Times telling, but as Summers and Hudson explain, the austerity model, quote, appeals to certain smug middle-class prejudices and stereotypes in countries whose populations have not had to suffer economic experiments in neoliberal horror, close quote.
3: It's the nature of the experiment It's the patterns of my temperament It's the nature of the experiment It's taken me in increments
4: Another day, another completely crucial, utterly underreported story. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. The country of Iceland, known most recently for economic collapse and the angry volcano, Ijafjalluljulululu, shares a lot with the United States. Like us, it deregulated the banks, and like us, it collapsed into a smoldering heap. Which is precisely what happens when you let bankers do whatever bankers want to do. But that's where the similarities end. You see, Iceland dealt with the collapse the opposite way we did. And I know you're thinking, doing the opposite of us? How could that be possible? Clearly, we're gospel. The definition of ignorance is the opposite of whatever we do. If we decide to blow up our own citizens with drones, then not doing that is the wrong way to behave. But no, believe it or not, doing the opposite of bailing out the banks and punishing homeowners has done Iceland well. They indicted the prime minister, let the banks fail, filed 200 criminal charges against the bank execs, and forgave much of the homeowner debt. So instead of kissing the asses of banks and licking the hairy Goldman Sachs of the world, they bailed out the average working people of Iceland who were just trying to make a meager salary as ice farmers or whatever the f*** they do over there. And what was the result? Did chaos break out? Did gaping of fire devour the land, spewing forth zombies and vampires and steaming Lady Gaga heads that chased down and destroyed every mad woman and flugen? No! Well, okay, there was a giant volcano, so I guess the, the, the gaping fire... F- part was true, but I don't think that had to do with the banks. So no, instead the economy rebounded, doing better than the European Union, there's not much unemployment, and they haven't introduced much austerity, and the bankers who caused the mess are either in jail, or getting spit on at restaurants as they try to eat their fight. An Icelandic delicacy, and ironically... Also, the noise you make when you choke on it. But on our news channels, you hear a fair amount about Egypt's troubles, but we don't hear a whisper about Iceland. Because it's unacceptable to mention putting bankers in jail rather than locking up homeowners. And by the way, we are seeing the return of debtors' prisons. In fact, Michigan, this stink eye's for you. I I need to work on my stink eye. The, The last guy I gave it to thought he had a spider on his face and then flipped out. The other reason this story isn't reported is because it goes against the American thesis statement of personal responsibility. doesn't matter if you were lied to by the mortgage lender. You have to take responsibility for your debts, mother. Unless, of course, you're, you're a massive bank or investment firm. Then we'll allow you to show the least responsibility since that lady who left her three toddlers to be babysat by her golden retriever while she was at a casino. And the golden retriever wasn't even getting paid well. And when it all comes crashing down, we'll prop you back up, Mr. Wall Street, like Weekend at Bernie's. If Bernie were a <laughs> and then we'll give you a bulging bonus. This is America, <laughs> it. socialism for the rich when they want it, prison for the poor. And in case you're curious about the number of U.S. Justice Department prosecutions of masterminds behind the pillaging of our country, zero. Although some did find themselves in Obama's cabinet, so that'll show them.
5: This was the scene earlier today on the House floor. Watch.
6: We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America.
5: Now he did not write that himself. Yes, it was Constitution Day on the floor of the House of Representatives. Read the Constitution Day. Remember two years ago when Republicans took over the House, John Boehner became Speaker for the first time. They decided to make a big show out of reading the Constitution page by page on the floor of the House as one of their first acts. Well, they apparently enjoyed that so much a couple of years ago and they did it the first time that they decided to bring it back. So today, for more than an hour, members of the House took turns reading a section of the Constitution again. And and honestly, the second time around, the whole thing sort of lost a little bit of steam compared with last time. All told, just 74 members of the House turned up today to read parts of the Constitution. Now, organizers had said they expected 120 members to show up, so they divided the Constitution into 120 sections. When not that many people showed up, they ended up having to stretch. They had to give the congressmen and women who did show up two or three sections apiece to read all at once. The sequel is just never as good as the original, right? Fortunately for House Republicans, though, it was not as flat-out embarrassing for them as a group this time the way it was when they did it the last time a couple of years ago. I mean, remember, a couple years ago when they did it, the first time, they did not just skip parts of the Constitution they didn't like. They accidentally skipped some parts of the Constitution that they liked just fine, but that just had the misfortune of getting lost when pages in their binder got stuck together. This time, I think the group experience was a little less humiliating. It was more just kind of sad and sparsely attended. this year they saved the real embarrassment for just one guy. For just Republican Congressman Dennis Ross of Florida. He drew the short straw today. He was the guy who showed up, I think totally randomly, but just in time to be handed Section 4 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to read out loud. That's what he got assigned. If that specific clause is not ringing a bell, um, that's the part of the Constitution that goes like this.
6: Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. Ooh.
5: The validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, so says the Constitution. Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, that's the part of the Constitution that says explicitly that the U.S. government can't, under any circumstances, default on our debt. And that made it a very awkward section for Republican Congressman Dennis Ross to have to read out loud, since he's been one of the House Republicans who has been threatening to force the United States government to default on our debt, damn the Constitution. Lakeland's Dennis Ross, among the GOP freshmen to tell John Boehner no. Ross was among the freshman Republicans who told John Boehner that he would not be voting for the debt ceiling proposal. That was from the last time the House Republicans threatened the country with defaulting on our debt back in 2011. Dennis Ross, you probably should have calibrated your place in line a little better. Throw a Democrat in there ahead of you when you realize that's what you're gonna get. Get there in time for the repeal prohibition amendment next time, that's more fun. If you have found yourself at home constitutionally, uh, forgive me, constitutionally incapable of getting excited over having another fight about the debt ceiling this year, if if this isn't exciting because it just feels like Groundhog Day to you, oh my God, I've got reckless brinksmanship fatigue. uh, It is true that it's hard to get excited over something we have done before. It is 2013 now. The last time we had a big fight over the debt ceiling was 2011. And of course, remember what happened? It was a total disaster. Even if you just ignore the political consequences, if you just look at the economic impact, it was a self-imposed economic disaster caused by Washington refusing to do something that it needs to do and that it has done dozens of times before. Republicans just refused to do it. It was such a disaster, you would think that there would not be a reason to explain that this shouldn't happen again. But it's happening again in what looks like an exact repeat of 2011. Except for one thing. There's one thing that is different so far this time around. And time will tell whether this proves to be a harbinger of something bigger or whether this is just a single outlying happy fact. But this year, there is one Republican member of Congress who has broken ranks on the big stupid debt ceiling thing. In 2011, there was not a single Republican in Congress, in the House or in the Senate, who broke ranks publicly and said, actually purposely driving the American economy into a ditch in order to make a point that even we don't understand and that's against the Constitution, that might not be a great idea. Nobody broke ranks when the Republicans did this in 2011. Nobody on the Republican side. But today on the Republican side, somebody did. Today, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska broke ranks. She gave an interview to her hometown newspaper in Alaska, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. She said she disagrees with her party's strategy of threatening the country with default, quote, Senator Lisa Murkowski's breaking with Republican leadership in the debate about raising the U.S. debt ceiling, saying the country has a duty to assure it can pay its bills. Lisa Murkowski said she does not think the debt limit should be used for political leverage. Murkowski said not all of her colleagues in the Senate will say it out loud but she believes most agree that failing to raise the debt limit would harm perception of the country. Quote, if you incur an obligation, you have a responsibility to pay for that, Murkowski said. Time is gonna tell if Lisa Murkowski is the first Republican to break ranks, or if she is the only Republican to break with Republican leadership on this issue. But the fact that she's done it already makes this a better movie than it was in 2011. Stay tuned.
7: Are you up to your ears in debt? Do the bills just keep coming? Get your financial house in order by refusing to pay. Debt Be Gone lets you take control of your financial future by not paying your bills of the past. Sure, some might call it defaulting, but Debt Be Gone is really a fiscal responsibility tool developed by the accounting wizards at Republicon Incorporated. Bought too much home entertainment on credit? Do the responsible thing and refuse to pay car payments out of hand, stop paying them to show you won't stand for your fiscal irresponsibility. Ate a few too many lobsters with your steak? Just don't pay. Remember, you're today's fiscal conservative. I'll gladly not pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And take charge of your future bar tabs by not paying for your previous 17 beers. You don't have a drinking problem. You have a debt problem. Remember, fiscal responsibility starts with not paying for what you've bought. Debt Be Gone also means you'll get the Bill Me Never Boehner, the perfect way to handle those pesky calls from bill collectors. Um, You
8: purchased 58
7: Super Deluxe Flying Jet Fighters.
8: Go f*** yourself.
9: Go f*** yourself.
7: Debt Be Gone by Republican Incorporated, when you absolutely, positively have to blow up the economy to get your way.
8: You know, maybe we could learn a lesson from Sarah Palin. When the Royal Dutch Shell Kulig rig got stuck on the rocky shores of Alaska on New Year's Eve, the people of that state were paying very close attention. And it wasn't just because they worried about the potential for another environmental disaster in their backyard. It was because they pay attention very closely to their state's oil industry in general, because they all make a lot of money from it. Alaska is unique, and it has something called the Alaska Permanent Fund. Believing that all residents of the state should profit off the resources that are naturally below their feet, Alaska takes the money the big oil corporations pay them in oil leases and royalties, invests that money, and then distributes the return on those investments to each and every resident of the state. So every year, Every single man, woman, and child in Alaska gets a check for between 1000 and 2000 bucks on average. So if you're a husband and wife with two kids, you could earn as much as $8000 at the end of the year. And that's not pocket change for a working family trying to make it during this Republican Great Recession. I'd say Republican Great Depression. Thanks to the supplemental income to each resident of Alaska, the state enjoys the third highest median income in the nation and is also the second most equal state in the nation. It's a system that works. It's been embraced by both Democrats and Republicans, even Sarah Palin. So, why don't we do this in the rest of the country? I mean, we actually sort of already do apply it to the rest of the country, but only the billionaires, you know, get the checks. Right now, our entire economic model, largely controlled by the billionaire class, depends on enriching the lives of shareholders and business owners, but not average working class Americans. From Wall Street to big oil to the for profit health insurance industry, business decisions are always made in the context of what's going to increase the wealth of the shareholders. Take a look at the 400 richest Americans, and you'll see a list of billionaires who collect most of their money in a form of non labor dividend income from things that they own, like businesses, stock, land, infrastructure. Paris Hilton gets a steady stream of dividend checks from her family's hotel business. The Koch brothers get their regular checks in the mail courtesy of the massive energy conglomerate their dad built up, known as Koch Industries. Mitt Romney continues to collect his checks from Bain Capital. It's Good to be a shareholder, corporate owner, and capitalist, American. That's all well and good, but aren't we all shareholders in our commons, just like the Alaskans are? And being such, shouldn't we collect dividends every time our commons turns a profit for others, just like Alaskans? In Alaska, the oil, the the, the money that oil corporations pay to lease and extract oil in public lands, is distributed to all Alaskans equally. So, nationally, the money from oil and gas extraction could be distributed to Americans equally, too. In 2007, the U.S. government collected $9 billion in royalty payments from big oil on just the drilling done in the Gulf of Mexico. Just the drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. In reality, we should have collected a lot more, but the U.S. ranks 93rd in the world in how much revenue we get from oil and gas extraction. Compared to those profits that the industries enjoy. This has something to do with Ronald Reagan. From nineteen fifty-four to eighty-three, the average lease for federal land was two thousand two hundred and twenty-four dollars an acre. But after Reagan, from eighty-three to two thousand eight, the average lease was just two hundred and sixty-three dollars an acre, not two thousand two hundred. Now, why that happened is a whole nother rant, which we will get into some other time. But let me just suffice to say, it all began with Reagan.com. Anyhow. Uh, or it all started with Reagan.com, but still, nine billion dollars in royalties from just the Gulf of Mexico is a considerable chunk of change. And if we were going to distribute all that money equally to all Americans, like they do in Alaska, that's about thirty bucks a person. Now, when you consider everybody in the United States, that's uh, it's not too much money. But when you throw in the leases and royalties paid everywhere else around the nation, I mean, keep in mind that was just the Gulf of Mexico. We're drilling like crazy all over the place. Plus, we're pulling gas out of the ground like there's no tomorrow. we got coal mines, East Coast Coast drilling platforms, fracking wells, Appalachian coal mines, oil derricks in the Midwest and Texas. You add all that stuff up, and if we did what Alaska does, you're talking serious money. Not only that, think of how much money is put into our common military to defend the interests of big oil abroad to make sure that the shipping lanes stay open and the oil spigot keeps flowing big oil should contribute a fee for that service which can also be added to this common permanent fund to be shared by all americans and what about making big oil pay for their pollution of the commons cap-and-trade system which forces polluters to pay for how much carbon they dump into the atmosphere great start Could raise even more money for our commons permanent fund to be shared by all of us by the way nancy pelosi passed such a thing Not that the money was shared, but a cap and fund, a cap and trade system for carbon fuels, it got passed out of the House Representatives. It had more than fifty votes in the Senate. The Republicans filibustered it. Another, you know, reason why we need filibuster reform. But I digress. The point is, our commons belong to all of us. Our mineral wealth belongs to all of us. It should be enriching all of us, and not just the billionaires who've planted their flags in the ground. And it shouldn't stop at just oil, Wall Street. Relies heavily on our commons, too. Our markets are regulated by common government and forced through common courts and fueled by workers who are educated in our commons, our public school system. So, how about a small financial transaction tax on every single trade? Just a fraction of a penny. So that we, the shareholders in this nation, also get to see gains from a booming market. Or, better yet, as entrepreneur and defender of the commons, Peter Barnes proposes, we shall get a cut every time a company goes private. Barnes argues, "Quote: When a company like Facebook or Google goes public, its value rises dramatically. Experts call this liquidity premium, and it's generated not by the company but by society. This socially created wealth now flows mostly to a small number of Americans. Let's say we required public companies to deposit one percent of their shares in the common fund for ten years, up to a total of ten percent. In due time, the common fund would have a diversified portfolio worth trillions of dollars." Excuse me. I said when we take a private, I meant when we take them public. Now consider the enormous profits that radio, TV, and entertainment companies receive by using our common air and infrastructure. Or publishers, our common copyright laws, or authors. I'm one of them. I make money off the copyright laws. I think I should be sharing that with everybody in the country because you know the copyright laws are part of the commons. (laughs) It's not an enormous amount of money, but hey, what the heck? They too should be paying into the common fund. Add together all these rents for using our commons, and we the people have raised quite a bit of money for our common permanent fund that could go a long way to supplementing the annual incomes of millions of Americans who desperately need a bit more cash. Somehow, as capitalism was left to run amok in America over the last few decades, we forgot the important role our commons can play in enriching all of our lives rather than CEOs and billionaires paying us to use our commons, pollute our air and water, dictate our military missions, exploit our markets, hijack our radio, TV, airwaves. It's all been flipped upside down, and we end up paying them? We give them subsidies, tax breaks, free usage? Come on. We need a national permanent fund. Let's do what Sarah Palin did.
0: show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
6: You know, they say President Obama is now going to have two things on his agenda, mainly uh, which is immigration reform and gun control. Those are very worthy topics, and of course, overwhelming both of those is these budget deals he's doing with the Republicans, we had the fiscal cliff, now we 're going to have the debt ceiling crisis, etc, right But if you notice there's actually nothing being done or proposed about creating jobs that is at best a fourth priority. Now, what was the overwhelming top priority of the American voters? Jobs so again, I'm not saying that the other three topics aren't worthy, they very much are, and we care deeply about them, okay. But it's interesting that jobs hasn't even really come up. There's no legislation, there's no proposal, there's no bill, nothing. Okay? So, another interesting data point here. Do you know that median household income is now lower than when President Obama took office in 2009? So, if he really is trying to help the middle class, he's got a funny way of showing it. Do you know that median household income is actually lower now than it was when Clinton took office? The middle class is getting crushed. We're losing good jobs and we're getting lower and lower wage jobs. So let me give you uh more data on that. Well, in since nineteen seventy nine, this is fascinating, the top uh well, top one percent of American households have captured thirty-eight percent of the growth in income. Okay? Growth in income, thirty eight percent going to the top one percent. The bottom ninety percent have only gotten thirty seven percent and i always talk to you about nineteen seventy eight being a turning point and there it is since seventy nine the top one percent has gotten more of the income growth than the bottom ninety percent now that's not obama's fault okay that's obviously a huge trend that's been going on for a number of reasons i think mainly because of money and politics but has that been stopped no as i just pointed out to you median household income is actually dropping through all of these years now there was a bit of a recovery under President Obama, that's absolutely true. Uh, but before the recovery, uh during the recession, mid-wage jobs, which are roughly uh, hourly wage between $13.84 and $21.13. Those are mid-wage jobs. Account for 60% of the jobs lost. So we lose 60% uh, or 60% of the jobs lost are mid-wage jobs, okay? During the recovery, only twenty two percent of the jobs added were mid-wage jobs whereas fifty eight percent of the jobs added were low-wage jobs so do you you understand the phenomenon that's going on here middle class medium-wage jobs we lose a lot of them we gain only a few back the jobs we do gain back are mainly low-wage this is how the middle class in america gets crushed i have more President Obama said, hey, you know what, uh, I have a goal of creating one million manufacturing jobs. Again, nothing has been proposed on that front yet, but that's his gener- general goal, that's what he said in the election to get elected. Now, is that a big deal? Well, it's that million sounds like a lot. But do you know that during that uh, economic crash, uh, no, I should be clear, actually between 2000 and 2010, in that decade, when we were giving all those tax cuts to the rich and they were supposed to create jobs, right, no, we lost more than 5 million manufacturing jobs. We went from 17 million to 12 million manufacturing jobs. So, if you added 1 million back, it'd be great, but nowhere near where we used to be. What happened? I thought tax cuts were supposed to create jobs. looks like we lost jobs. Right. So, now, to be fair to President Obama, he has talked about, hey, infrastructure spending. But Huffington Post points out, quote, Obama has repeatedly proposed more infrastructure spending, but the White House has routinely given up such demands in negotiations with Congressional Republicans. In other words, oh man, oh yeah, I'm middle class. I'm looking out for you, man. I really want to create jobs. How are we going to do that? Uh, infrastructure spending of oh that the minute I run into John Boehner, I go, hey, remember that infrastructure spending? Out the window. Don't worry about it. Didn't mean it. Okay, that's my first concession almost every single time. So, what's left on President Obama's agenda for how to create jobs? Tax reform. You know what that means? (laughs) Corporate tax cuts. (laughs) How's that working out so far? We do tax loophole after tax loophole, and what happens? Do we create jobs? No, we continue to lose jobs. We continue to lose manufacturing jobs. This is the only thing the two parties can agree to, which is how do we funnel more money to multinational corporations? One more promise from President Obama. He said back in 2008 that by uh, the year 2011, he would have the minimum wage up to $9.50. Well, back then it was $7.25. You know what it is today? $7.25.
5: as I can see during the George W Bush administration government spending went up a lot. This is government expenditures per capita, per American person, combines federal and state and local governments. Right? As, you can, as you can see, it starts there when George W. Bush took office in 2001, and it wasn't like there was just some individual spike in spending that happened right after 9-11. It was a steady, huge increase over time. So per capita government spending was roughly 12 grand per person when W. came into office. When he left office, it wasn't 12 grand in, anymore. It was 16 grand in government spending for every man, woman, and child in the country. That is a big, steep increase. For comparison's sake, if you look at Bill Clinton, who was in office for the same amount amount of time, Bill Clinton also saw spending rise, but compared to W, he kept spending under control. It did go up some during the Clinton years, but it really, as you can see, just takes off when it goes to Bush. Since President Obama has been in office, he's been better than both of them. He hasn't just held the reins like Clinton did, he has turned it around. He has, so far at least, bent the curve, brought spending down from where it was. At the per capita level, look, I know you don't believe me, President Obama has actually brought government spending down since he took office. So remember that. Bush more spending, Obama less spending. That is what is true.
6: It's clear the, the president's just not serious about cutting spending. But spending is the problem.
5: We've got to stop the president on this issue. He's an out-of-control train right now on spending. The president remains committed to an agenda that calls for ever-higher spending, a government that is out of control.
6: The president uh, wants to pretend that spending isn't a problem.
0: It is a spending problem, and the president wants to increase taxes to continue the spending.
6: These Democrats are going to spend us right into bankruptcy. They're not serious about getting things under control and stopping the spending. The White House is so unserious about cutting spending.
5: None, none of that is true. I mean, to the extent that true means attached to facts. I mean, here's spending under Bush, here's spending under Clinton, here's how spending has dropped under President Obama. These guys were not mad about George W. Bush's big spike in spending, but they have decided to get really mad at the guy who is fixing that. And that anger is weird enough on its own terms. It's weird enough that this Republican analysis of the problem is so divorced from reality. But what today's news reminded us is that it's not just the analysis that is weird. It's also the purpose of the analysis, what they are using, this cockamamie backwards analysis, to justify that is really deeply strange. For decades, raising the debt ceiling was something that Congress has been willing to do. Since the presidency of FDR, Congress has routinely voted to raise it, literally dozens of times. It is a normal part of American governing. It is the way we run the country and have for generations. You may not like it, but we use debt financing. We've had to raise the debt ceiling under every president in modern history. We have raised it 89 times just between 1939 and 2010. The only time we haven't had to raise it in recent years was at the very end of the Clinton administration when we started running a budget surplus. Remember that? But other than that, it's the kind of thing that happens as a matter of course. It is routine. But in 2011, Republicans in Congress decided that they weren't going to do it anymore. And that standoff where they said they weren't going to do it, this thing that had been done dozens of times before under Republican presidents and Democratic presidents before them, they weren't going to do it. The country could default on its debts. They didn't care they were going to draw a line in the sand or whatever. That was an economic disaster when they made that decision. Check it out. This is, this is job growth month to month in the year 2011. During that time when it's weirdly suppressed, see that big dip over the summer? Oh yeah, that was the fight over the debt ceiling. So when you hear business interests weighing in and saying, we agree with President Obama, the debt ceiling should not be an issue, it needs to be raised and stop fighting about it, they're looking back at 2011 and saying that's why. The Chamber of Commerce fights President Obama on everything. The Chamber of Commerce wants them to just raise the debt ceiling because not doing it is a ridiculous self-inflicted economic wound. Well, today Republicans have decided that we're not going to do in 2013 what they did in 2011. They decided that we are not going to have artificially depressed job growth and economic pain caused by Washington for one period of the year like we did in 2011. They decided today that we're now going to have that all the time. We're going to do that constantly. Yeah, today the House passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling, but they want to have us hit it again in a few months they raised the debt ceiling for a few months. Instead of just doing this once for the year, or for two years, or in some more permanent way to avoid this self-inflicted economic wound, they voted today that we should do this constantly. Every few months, just have this happen over and over again. Because remember, Obama's a big spender. Yeah, Democrats are uh, going along with this reluctantly. There were more Democratic votes against this than there were for this today. But this, this, this is what Republicans want to be the new normal. So whether or not you think there is constitutional support for trying to take this decision out of the hands of this Congress, what just happened today is the reason why people want to take this particular decision out of the hands of this Congress. For decades, Congress was capable of handling this decision. Apparently that is not the case anymore.
3: Let's move on to the post office, right? Because um, don't I, get me started. I don't, know if, I don't know if you heard the big news that the post office is cutting its Saturday delivery. Right? Well, here. Well, let's, let's let's go to the big news. Here's what Wolf Blitzer has to say.
0: After 150 years, the U.S. Postal Service plans a halt to most Saturday mail
3: deliveries. What it means for you? I'm guessing it means I won't get mail on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it means. Hey, am, Very good. Am, am I close, <laughs> Wolf? Am I close? Is that what it's going to mean? from me? pieces together, the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then they go on to do their story. And here's the CNN story explaining what happened to the. Uh, Why they have to cut their Saturday delivery. Here's uh, the CNN's report. With
8: more
7: and more people paying bills over the Internet and using email instead of snail mail to keep in touch, the Postal Service has seen big losses, nearly $16 billion in 2012. Officials say moving to five-day service will save $2 billion a year. A two thousand and six law requiring the service to prepay health care benefits for future retirees has added to the financial strain. The Postmaster General says Congress needs to help the service solve its money problems
3: okay, so that was pretty much the base the, the crux of the report and i don 't know if you notice what they glossed over, so what they did was they made it pretend that the financial problems of the post office are being caused by people using email more now. Uh, But what the real problem is, which they glossed over, the real problem lies in a 2006 bill that was passed in Congress during a lame duck session on a voice vote. And what was that bill? That bill mandated that the United States Postal Service pre-fund future retiree health benefits for the next 75 years. No. No. And they had to do so within a decade. An obligation that no other public agency or private company faces. That's roughly $5.5 billion in annual payments since 2007. That's $21 billion in total. And that's the difference between a positive and negative ledger for the post office. So what they passed in 2006 during a lame duck session. After the Republican Congress had just gotten voted out, they passed this thing on a voice vote, which on that, a what? On a voice vote. They didn't even vote on it spe- individually, so you can't track how people mm-hmm. vote. They just said "I." It, voice, voice vote. Yeah. And the vote was that to do what I just said. So all of a sudden they go, and why did they do that? Where did they think up this scam? So this scam was made to bankrupt the post office. The post office, which in 2006 was not running a deficit. The post office paid for itself, ran perfectly. Everyone enjoyed it. And what did they want to do? Let's kill it. So I thought it was the Republicans who killed it. I'm like, oh, it's definitely the Republicans. Well, it was, but guess who co-sponsored the bill? Henry Waxman. Henry Waxman, the Democrat, co-sponsored the bill to do this to the post office. So all I can think is that Henry Waxman is golf buddies with the head of UPS and FedEx because that's what this is. This is about privatizing the mail system, and that's all about this. So it was not just the Republicans. This is the Republicans and the Democrats. They both did this. This is what 's wrong with government, right? So the br- Republicans say government doesn't work, and to prove it, they took the part of government that works great and pays for itself, doesn't take any tax dollars, and they bankrupted them on purpose wow so and that would be that would be the part of the story that c n n missed. That would be the part of the story the Washington Post mixed. That would be the part of the story the New York Times missed. That's the part of the story the media missed. And did you want to say something, Steph? Yeah, I
5: just I, – I think – isn't the Pentagon running in the black?
3: Oh, no. they're Sure, they're making money. Yeah, they're – They're, they're okay. not – yes. Yes. So – And let's be clear about something, okay? The post office is a public utility, and it's a public utility for a couple of good reasons. Think about it this way. Roads are a public utility. What if roads were an entirely private enterprise? Well, it would probably cost a goddamn fortune to drive any substantial distance. Furthermore, the roads would only go where it's overtly profitable for them to build a road to go. Again, look at the cable companies and look how they didn't pay to run fiber optic lines because the poor don't need the Internet in order to participate in the economy, right? And with all public utilities, the post office is, of course, a fascist communist plot against wholesome companies like UPS and FedEx, at least in the sense that it creates price controls for the entire shipping market. One of the core industries in any functioning economy, you have to set – price controls and never mind that without those price controls fedex and ups could hold a gun to the head of the entire nation and ask for any amount of money they would want to send granny her insulin and never mind that the history shows us over and over that is exactly what they would do that's what they would do again look at your cable bill so just keep in mind That what the post office had to do, no other company has ever had to do this. No government agency has ever, nobody has ever had to do this. It defies logic and every reasonable financial practice ever. Can you imagine if the post office had to pay any of its major expenses for the next 30 years in one lump sum ahead of time? They don't even like to pay their workers full-time benefits as it is. If they had a prepay, well, I'm pretty sure we'd see the CEO announcing a move to a more slavery-based business model. Okay, (laughs) So this, of course, is one of those policy wonk clauses that the Republicans get into spending bills in order to favor their campaign contributors. But it wasn't just Republicans it was also democrats however if their actual constituents ever found out what they were doing they'd all torch them with a pitchfork i'm just saying i've never heard of a congressman at a rally claiming that one of his major accomplishments was to severely cripple something that every normal person relies on hey we're going to kill the most basic form of communication also social security and medicare soon your drinking water is going to be a game of russian roulette usa usa so guess so they so the CNN actually during the report they went and they talked to the postmaster general. Now this is one of the most important jobs in the country, a position held by Benjamin Franklin at one time, no less. So here's the current postmaster general, Patrick Donahue, Donahoe, and here's what he had to say about what's pro- what's uh, what the problem with the U- United States postal system is. This was on CNN.
8: I would like Congress to do a number of things, resolve health care issues for us, instruct the Postal Service to take their own health care plan and get out of the federal system, refund our federal employee retirement system, and just not say anything and let us move ahead with the six to five day of mail delivery.
3: Okay, I I don't really understand what he just said. It sounded pretty mealy-mouthed. He didn't say what the real problem was. I wonder why he didn't say what the real problem was. Oh, turns out he did. But CNN didn't air that part. Here's what he said that same day. And of the
8: $15.9 billion loss, $11.1 billion was due to the amount that we are obligated to pay the Treasury to pre-fund retiree health benefits. We had to default on those payments because we did not have the funds. Help.
3: Okay, so CNN did not air that part. They didn't air that. That's, they didn't, that's true. They didn't. Um sounds like a conspiracy. And, ca- and in case you haven't heard us say it enough, the news media, they really suck at their jobs. In this instance, they asked the question, hey, why does the post office need to eliminate Saturday delivery? Then in order to answer that question, they seem to have just guessed and reported that, you know, it's because of the emails. That's what it's about. Now, they mm-hmm. could have asked the the postmaster general what he thought, seeing as he posted a video of himself explaining this. Mm-hmm. And seems to he seems to be available for an interview. They could have gone and found the numbers at the CBO. They could have called a few economists to pay attention to the postal industry. But all that would have taken time and energy. And who cares anyway, right? They were just being efficient. It's the Internet. And that's kind of shit. That's what's bankrupting them. Explanation complete. Yeah. I love the way CNN fails to cover the story responsibly and then shows us this lady almost as an example of the ill-informed American this sort of reporting produces. She, they showed this little clip. Here's a woman and they asked her, what did she think of it?
2: They need to make cost cutting measures. I mean, they've been running in the deficit for quite a while.
3: And that's what you get. When you listen to CNN and you turn to them for news, you get a woman like that who has no idea what she's talking about. Oh, yeah, the post office, they just must be in deficit because, well, that's what they've been telling me on the news without explaining it to me. That's CNN, you know, and of course, nobody thought to correct her or inform her with the information that are at their fingertips. But that's CNN, you know, it would be nice if someone would do that, inform their viewers. It would also be nice if CNN had, I don't know, say a foreign bureau. I look forward to the day when CNN just goes all sports or Spanish language music.
8: arguably <laughs> 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 gone back and forth back and forth, back and forth in the United States between being a a more conservative country, shall we say, and a more liberal country Now those words in the last hour I was talking about those words in the context of Hobbes and Locke and Jefferson and Rousseau. Um, in a way, you could put, use those frames, but for example, in uh, from Teddy Roosevelt until 1920, we had a very activist government. It was actively breaking up big companies and and working for the benefit of small business people and taxing at the top at top rate of 95 percent uh, millionaires and what would today we would call billionaires and uh, corporations were providing more than almost more than almost 40% of all the total revenues into the federal government. In the election of 1920, Warren Harding ran on the campaign promise of less business in, less government in business, more business in government. That was his slogan, one of his two slogans. And uh, he delivered on that. He dropped the top tax rate down to 25%, he dropped the corporate tax rate kicked off the roaring 20s, which then led to the great crash of 1929, and then we became a more liberal country. So we had this conservative era and then this liberal era which arguably was the uh, FDR uh followed by uh, uh Truman followed by Eisenhower followed by Kennedy followed by Lyndon Johnson actually the, the 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 more liberal era the era of social security and medicare and unemployment benefits and minimum wage and workplace protections went from FDR's presidency in 1932 up until Ronald Reagan's presidency in nineteen eighty, and then we flip back to the more Warren Harding kind of conservative. Well, those are really not the jobs of government; those are not the roles of government. Uh, let's get government out of the business education. Let's privatize our schools. Let's get business out of the, or government out of the you know out of meddling in workplace issues. It shouldn't be backstopping unions. All these kinds of things, and so we had the Reagan Revolution in, in a very real sense a revolution. Charles Krauthammer was positing on Fox News yesterday that obama's not his election but his reelection that the speech that he gave yesterday was basically a declaration that the era of reagan was over much like fdr in nineteen thirty three said that the era of warren harding Coolidge, and, and hoover was over that that era was over and that we were coming back into a new progressive era not unlike that of the of the fdr and truman and eisenhower administrations here is charles krauthammer on fox news
1: and I think what's most interesting is that Obama basically is declaring the end of Reaganism in this speech. Remember, he once said that Ronald Reagan was historically consequential in a way that Bill Clinton was not. And what Obama meant is that Obama had changed the ideological course of the country. The Reagan in changed. 1981, in his inaugural address, within two minutes, Reagan had declared that government is not the solution government is the problem today's inaugural address was a rebuke to that entire idea this speech today was an ode to big government it was a hymn to big government and i absolutely
8: agree with charles krauthammer
9: and uh, I'm sure most of the people who listen to the best of the left have seen the documentary called The Corporation um, if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet I highly recommend it it's a Canadian documentary which basically sets out to show that if a, you know, if a forensic uh, profiler that if a corporation were a person all its habits would in fact make it a, a sociopath it's a very interesting documentary so love the episode keep up the good work Jay
10: Hi, this is Stephen. I just wanted to leave a comment about the episode on corporations. At the end, you mentioned that corporations are either good or bad. They're sort of just amoral, and I would almost make the argument that they are, in fact, bad. They inherently, I mean, corporations are not in nature, uh, but legally they've been created, and legally they've been created in such a way that their primary motivator, legally speaking, is greed. It's making money. It's uh, maximizing profits for shareholders, which means if a corporation like Nike decided, you know, we're going to just do the right thing and we're going to start paying our workers more, we're going to ship some of our manufacturing facilities back to the United States, you know, we're going to do this. You know, we'll still be profitable, but, you know, maybe not as profitable as before, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, shareholders could actually sue Nike and could get them to stop doing those things uh, because it's not in their best interest to do so. And uh, you know that that's important to keep in mind when having a conversation about about corporations. You know their nature or their you know the legal fiction that is a corporation. What exactly can we do? I think that's got to be first and, and foremost legally changing the fiction that is a corporation to include uh, other equally important duties to communities, workers, uh, the environment, and uh, you know that's all definitely within the realm of possibility. Uh, if we just hope or expect that corporations will become more benevolent or will start doing the right thing because we really, really want them to it's just not going to happen it's technically illegal for them to do so so just wanted to share my two cents i appreciate the show and keep up with your hey
9: jay what's going on it's chris um hey dude i just listened to the corporations are not immoral they're immoral episode and i just wanted to respond to your final um Your final comment there about how corporations um, are amoral, and how you said you know some of the commentators on the show today, the circumstances on the show, um, they're not saying that the corporations are bad. And you know, I was thinking about that; didn't quite sit right with me, especially considering the very first episode uh, on or the very first uh, segment on this episode, where if the Young Turks are talking about what those firms, I think it was J.P. Morgan, did, you know, they were naming the, these horrible, horrible funds, these names, and basically they committed fraud. That is a law. They broke a law, and it, it, you know, that law was put in place to protect people from something that is deliberately harmful and deliberately deceptive, like fraud. And to say that, oh, that's just the business model, they're not to blame. Or, you know, they are to blame, I'm sure you would argue that, but it's not a good or bad thing. It's just the business model, you know, that that doesn't hold water with me. That doesn't sit right. I understand that given capitalism, given the nature of our economy, that these businesses are set up to make money. But they also are set up to make money within the framework of our laws, And when those laws, regardless of the fact that the people who are charged with enforcing those laws are beholden to the people breaking them, that speaks to the corruption of our justice system. But it also speaks to the morality, the sense of right and wrong, with that barometer, that judge of right and wrong being the laws, it also speaks to the morality of those companies.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, I will give you the number to do so in just a moment. But first, today, I have to announce that I have lost faith in my phone system. You know, first of all, like quite a long time ago, you know, I used to have a welcome message that played on that system so you call in, you get a little welcome message from me telling you how to, how to leave a message. And then that just dis- disappeared randomly. And then just a week ago, I stopped receiving email notifications when someone would, you know, leave a voicemail. And so I had to actually go to the website to retrieve the uh, the, the voicemails manually. So, you know, it's, it's okay. It's doable. But, you know, something fishy was going on. And now, as you just heard, uh, these voicemails I just played... I just went into the system today, pulled down all the voicemails, and they sounded like crap. The, uh, the, the, the quality of the recordings went way downhill for reasons I cannot understand. So uh, three strikes, you're out. I've jumped ship, uh, and I have a brand new phone number. So the old one will still work. If you happen to leave a message on the old one, I will get it. Uh, but please, you know, if you have, like... the the voicemail line saved in your phone for, you know, those quick, quick draw moments when you need to uh, leave a message, uh, please update it to the new number. I got a fancy new uh, Washington DC phone number. So it sounds very political and official. The number is 202-999-3991. Again, 202-999-3991. Now I just have a couple of things I want to go over real quickly. First of all, I want to second the idea that you go and see the the documentary, The Corporation. I think I saw it years and years ago in the theater when it came out. Obviously, now it's on DVD. I highly recommend, just as The Caller did, that you go check that out. Secondly, I want to mention uh, that a person wrote in, and I don't have it in front of me, but I can summarize, that they were uh, referencing my idea of Corporate Darwinism, which is of course not my idea at all, but is what I talked about in the last episode and uh, and this person said that that idea is oversimplified the idea that the managers of CEOs tend towards uh, chasing profit at the expense of morality and uh, so they said that, that is oversimplified because there are CEOs and corporate managers who are perfectly moral and really do try to do the right thing. This person has met them and knows they exist, and the one example that they give uh, specifically was the CEO of Starbucks. Now, I have no opinion about the CEO of Starbucks whatsoever, but my reaction to that uh, criticism is that that is exactly what I would expect from a, you know, a, a working Darwinian system, just as with biological Darwinism, There are going to be aberrations, there are going to be outliers, there are going to be mutations in the system. That's part of how it works. So Darwinism itself, it's sort of a simple concept, survival of the fittest, right? And so corporate Darwinism is also kind of simple. It's survival of the sort of most profit motive driven. But in practice, in actuality, it's an incredibly, almost infinitely complex system that creates the uh, the entire system itself of, of how, you know, people evolve and, and change into the types of corporate managers they eventually become. Uh, another thing that actually uh, very much affects corporate Darwinism, just as with biological Darwinism, is the length of time a company has been in existence. And so the example given, Starbucks, was only founded about 40 years ago. Companies that are more well-known for simply doing whatever they can do in pursuit of profit, I'll pick like GE uh, as an example, are very often more than 100 years old. So show me Starbucks in 100 years and maybe the aberration will continue and it'll be run by a CEO who's very moral and tries to do the right thing all the time. But my argument is that it tends in the direction of chasing profit over morality just as You know, biological aberrations tend towards uh, the species that survive better, Uh, but you know there's always going to be the dodo bird every once in a while, and that's why some species go extinct, and why some CEOs get fired, and why some companies go under entirely. Thirdly, now, super quickly, I just want to mention that the third caller today, well, I think he was just conflating the idea of personal individual morality with. The concept of corporate morality, I mean corporations are hypothetical theoretical entities. they're really nothing more than words on a page, agreements between people. Uh, you know they' are recognized as an entity by the government, but other than that, there's nothing to them they They are made up of the people who run them, and the people who run them can have morality, but the corporations themselves can't and corporations. When they're successful and last for a long time, they end up outliving all of the people who you know, run them. So the people come and go, the corporation stays. The people have morality, the corporation doesn't. Finally, though, I wanted to mention one thing that is sort of the, the one ray of hope I'm aware of. It, you know, The idea that, as the second caller was mentioning, that corporations maybe are inherently bad because of the fundamental structure the way they're set up they are set up to make money at any cost essentially And so the one ray of hope that I know of is called the triple bottom line. Now, reading from Wikipedia on the triple bottom line uh, is also known as people, planet, and profit, or the three pillars. It captures an expanded spectrum of values and criteria for measuring organizational and societal success, economic, ecological, and social. And so I would love for just... The law that makes it a corporation's fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits for its shareholders, I would love it if the law was changed so that if a corporation wants to pursue those three pillars of people, planet, and profit, rather than just the one of profit, that they couldn't be sued by their shareholders. If they're going after, you know, to aid people on the planet in addition to profit, that they they would be protected as managers, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction. Keep in mind, I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to corporate law and what sort of regulation could actually make that happen, but people much smarter than me could take a concept like that and formulate laws that would actually work and move in that direction at the very least. So that's going to do it for today. Keep those calls coming in. The brand new number again, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show either by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives.
7: Apart a picture that wasn't right, pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you wanna meet, a dying man in a living room, the shiny bases before. We'll take you out.